Good morning. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Chris Genders. I am the lead student pastor, so I get the privilege of working with Pastor Brandon all the time. He focuses on our high school ministry and our college students. I work with our middle school students and a lot of parent partnership and then uh, try and keep him in line as well, so as it goes. so. Uh, but thanks, uh, Brandon, for making those announcements this morning and uh, sharing all that's going on. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can open it if you want to. I'll get to it later. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, that's where we're going to be today. In your bulletin, you'll find some blanks. I actually gave you blanks. I don't normally do that. Um, and uh, so we're going to reference those as we go. But before I start today, I uh, just want to let you know, next week, Pastor Jake, our lead pastor, is going to be starting a new teaching series called Game Changers, and we're going to spend eight weeks looking at some people throughout Scripture uh, that were game changers, kind of, right? It speaks for itself there. Uh, but we hope you'll tune in with us for the next eight weeks for that, uh, that teaching series. That'll start next week. Um, now, I got to admit, I'm, I'm pretty excited to be up here. Um, we do our sermon team on Thursday. Pastor Jake was gone, on, and, and Aaron were on vacation this week, and uh, so he didn't get a chance to hear this or see this, but I was so excited on, on Thursday when I preached this to some of the other pastors. I, I preached in 22 minutes, Pastor Jake. Um, and I figured you guys would like that. Um, but the sermon team said, go ahead and add more content and slow down. Um, I, just, I was just super excited to preach uh, that, this material, this message. So, um, so bear with me if I get too, uh, too fast, too passionate, too excited, but it is my passion, right? That's why we're here. Uh, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we, we've had what we call our, our senior staff pastors preaching through their various passions. And uh, Pastor Bill, um, our, our uh, soon-to-be-retired uh, former lead pastor, what do we put on his business card anymore, right? Um, our connections pastor uh, spoke on being still and knowing God. Uh, the week after that, our children's pastor, Pastor Dan, spoke on laying a spiritual foundation for our children. Uh, and then last week, Pastor Nate, our worship pastor, talked about surrendering to God. And so we've known about this teaching series for a while and, and have been wrestling with this question of what is my passion? Uh, what am I going to preach about on this Sunday? And uh, there were some obvious choices. Students, uh, I spend most of my time with middle school and high school and college students. And so that was an obvious choice, but it just didn't feel like the right one. And so I thought, okay, parents, I, I have a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, and and maybe parents, and talk to the parents in the room, but Pastor Dan already stole that from me, so I didn't really get a chance to do that. Um, and then church leadership, I love leadership, I love organizational development, and all that stuff, but it just it didn't feel right. And so I, I turned to my family, and, and I said, you know, hey, I got this sermon coming up on my passion, and what do you think I should preach on? And I, I asked my 13-year-old daughter, uh, Morgan, she's seventh grader at Germantown Hills, and I said, Morgan, I got this sermon on my passion, what do you, what do you think I should preach on? And she, without skipping a beat, she goes, Dad, your passion is to drive around the country living in a van and living like a hippie. <laughs> I'll admit, I follow a few too many people on Instagram who live in vans and down by the river and all of that good stuff, right? But if I'm honest, that's not my passion, that's my escape when life gets crazy and I fantasize about ditching all you guys and everything and everybody, and I'm just going to live in a van in a national park somewhere. I hope my wife comes with me. Um, <laughs> I don't think she's going to, though, so I'm just saying. But as I was praying about this, um, I, I received a text message from a parent and a volunteer in our student ministry, and he sent me an article called Tether Yourself. And it was, this is Brian Palmasano, who owns 309 Technologies in Metamora. said, Tether Yourself, the, the enlightening talk parents aren't having uh, that can keep teens from a damaging drift. 
And it was a great article. I encourage you to read it. And it just talked about the power of social media and, and the need to have kids tether themselves to parents and, and, and those types of people for comfort and stability and security. And, and I realized as I, I reflected on this sermon this morning that my passion is to be tethered. But tethered not to my parents or other people, but tethered to God's word. My passion is to teach others to fall in love with this book. Um, and so this is my Bible. I just recently bought a new one. I kind of feel guilty about it because um, I love this Bible. It's been in my Bible for decades. And uh, one of the things I love about this Bible and I use it when I teach with students is, you know, it's kind of falling apart. Um, like, here's Matthew to 1 Corinthians 12. If you want 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, here you go, I can give you those. Um, if you want from 1 Corinthians to the blank notes, Revelation, if you want maps, I can give you maps, right? But I, I have used this book and I have abused this book. It is held together by duct tape. And today I'm going to be preaching from this part of the Bible. So we can just, <clears throat> we'll set that back there and that'll be good. But my passion is to be tethered to God and his word. It's one of the reasons why I challenge friends and, and youth ministry volunteers and others to read through the Bible every year. Uh, even if it's something you've done before, just to continually be uh, soaking yourself in the word of God. Uh, when I had the chance to go to Israel in 2010, our, our guide, our rabbi, uh, used this illustration. He said, you know, studying the Bible can be a lot like going to the beach. You remember this, Todd? It can be a lot like going to the beach. You sit on the beach and it's, it's beautiful, right? The waves and the birds and the sand and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you can sit there and you can have an enjoyable beach vacation just sitting on the beach, but then somebody hands you scuba gear, and they show you how to scuba dive, and you discover a whole world underwater that you didn't know existed. And, and I think the same applies to Scripture. We can, we can study this book, and we can study it as if we're sitting on a beach, and we can get a lot out of it. But then somebody teaches you how to study it, how to dig deep into it, and you discover a world that you never knew existed. And so my passion is the Word, but more than just the Word— my passion is really about the God that is revealed in the Word. It's about discovering the creator of the universe, the, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb, the one who loved me so much that he couldn't stand to see my sin-stained life, so he sent his own son Jesus to die on the cross for me. It's about the one who, who promises me that he will never leave me or forsake me, the one who holds eternity in his hand and, and promises me that one day I too will spend eternity with him. It's about Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was in the beginning, the one who will be in the end. It's, it's about Jesus who appears throughout the Old Testament, who is the focus of the Gospels, who all the New Testament writers can't stop talking about. My passion is to know Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, the, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is my passion. But so often, we make this book, the whole book, not just this part, more of a self-help book than we do really make it about Jesus. It becomes something that, that we use as a mirror for our own life rather than to really try to understand God and who he is. I was talking with the, the guys in my Tuesday morning men's group about this, and I shared with them a, about a book that was written in 2005 uh, by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. It was called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And 
they studied thousands of teenagers across the country and, and asking them biblical worldview questions. And what they discovered was most of the beliefs of these teenagers, and these were church-going teenagers, right? So a little convicting here as, as a youth pastor. Church-going teenagers, that their basic biblical belief, their basic worldview could have been found in any religion. It wasn't unique to Christianity. And what these sociologists coined was this phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's this idea that, that many people pursue God, thinking they're pursuing Jesus, but really they're pursuing a worldview of faith that makes them feel good, it's therapy, and gives them good morals. But it's really not God. It's really not about Jesus. And if we're honest, I think sometimes we fall into that trap. Sometimes we take our faith and we make it less about Jesus and more about us. Kathleen Norris writes in her book, Amazing Grace, a, a vocabulary of faith. She talked about the ancient Benedictine monks and, and their approach to studying the Bible. <clears throat> she writes this in the latter part of her book. Although their access to scholarly tools was primitive compared to what is available in our day, their method of biblical interpretation was, in some ways, more sophisticated and certainly more psychologically astute. In that, they were better able to fathom the complex integrative and transformative qualities of revelation. Their approach was far less narcissistic than our own tends to be, in that their goal, and listen to this, their goal when reading scripture was to see Christ in every verse, not a mere image of themselves. How often do we approach the word of God looking for self-help rather than Jesus? So how did how did the word of God, how, how did Jesus become my passion? My students know, and many of you know, that I did not grow up in the church. I grew up in a good and moral family, and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts was our religion, and we did it well. My brother and I are both Eagle Scouts. My, my parents were scout leaders. My sisters were in Girl Scouts. I've always said if you didn't grow up in the church, scouting is a pretty good place to grow up in. A strong moral foundation, leadership, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I didn't grow up in the church, but I would occasionally go to church. I had friends who, who were in a church, and when I wanted to get away from home and I would go spend time with my friends, I would go to church. And so anytime somebody tells me their kid comes to youth group just to have fun, I'm like, I don't care. That's why I went. I went to throw dodgeballs in people's faces and eat pizza, right? And sometimes listen about Jesus. But seeds were planted in all of those years of going to church with my friends, Right? And I find myself in college, freshman year, I'm in Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. My parents had recently divorced, about a year or two prior to that. My siblings had, had moved away. I was away from home for the first time ever, in a new environment, strange environment. And I grew up in a town of 2,800, I was on a campus of 25,000. I was a fish out of water. My roommate had a girlfriend back home, and so every weekend he went back home, and I was left by myself in the dorm room, and it was pretty lonely. And, and, and weekend after weekend, I got invitations from the guys in the dorms, hey, come out with us, come out with us, come out with us, and, and I had this moral conviction in high school that I wasn't going to drink until I was 21, but loneliness on Friday and Saturday nights kind of overwhelmed me. I just wanted to be with people. So I began to go out and, and start drinking and partying with them, things that I, I said I was never going to do. And there were nights that I had to have people tell me what I did, because I didn't remember it. There was one weekend where my best friend, who was a junior in high school, 
there's any students in here, don't do as I did, do as I say, right? Junior in high school, he came down for the weekend, and I went out and got alcohol. I wasn't even 21. He had a fake ID. Went out and got alcohol. And we stayed in the dorm because we knew he couldn't get in the bars. And, and we just drank. And he ended up passing out. And I had to, to watch over my best friend to make sure he didn't drown in his own vomit. Even that didn't make me stop, though. But I remember I was laying in bed one night and thinking through this, this whirlwind of chaos that my life had become. And, and I thought, is there nothing in life that will ever stay constant? Is there nothing that will ever not change? Will life always be chaotic? And many of you know what I'm talking about. Many of you right now are, are laying in bed at night going, did the doctor really just say cancer? Is that the word I heard? Is, is, is my family really falling apart around me? And I can't seem to gain any control in that. Did I really lose my job? I, I thought I was a great employee. And yet I don't have anywhere to go on Monday. How, how are we going to retire? We don't have money for retirement. We have to move my family again. This is the seventh time in ten years. You're laying in bed at night and trying to figure out, is this whirlwind of chaos always going to be present? And as I laid there in my dorm room that night and asking myself that question, I finally asked God that question. And one of those seeds that had been planted somewhere along the way in my middle school, high school years of going to church, the Holy Spirit used, and he, he brought to mind Hebrews 13.8. I don't know why. To me, it was just a random verse. I didn't even know I had it memorized. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I knew in that one moment that the one thing that would never change was God. The one constant that would always be there was God. My, my life may change, my family may change, careers may change, finances may fall apart, all of these things, and yet God will stay constant. So I began to go to the scriptures and began to find verses that would speak to this sense of security and strength. And I found Psalm 62.2, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my, my fortress while I will never be shaken. Rock. I found verses about God being rock and fortress and strong tower, verses that spoke to, to God being our strength, our protection, our confidence, our security. For today, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that I want to spend a few moments talking about, and it speaks to the same thing. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 18. It says, We who have fled to God for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want you to go back into your bulletin because you, you wrote down that my passion was be tethered to God and his word. I want you to cross out the word tethered and write down the word anchored. This is also the part where I thought about throwing in some pirate jokes because my students know I love pirate jokes. If you ever travel with me, I have a whole repertoire of pirate jokes, and I'll just share one, right? Um, what's a pirate's favorite cookie? Chips Ahoy, matey. Right? Did you get it? Oh, that was bad. 
See, that's why I love them. I get the same response from everybody all the time. They're like, seriously? And I have about a dozen of those. So. But my passion is to be anchored to God and his word, to be anchored to Jesus. Now, in this passage in Hebrews, there's, there's a number of word pictures that we have to highlight. And this is what I talk about in understanding scripture. You, you read this, and at surface level, you're like, okay, Jesus is our high priest, Melchizedek. I don't know who that is, whatever, but that's fine. But if you really want to understand this passage, you have to understand the Old Testament. You have to dig into scripture. You have to, to understand that in these three verses, there is so much meat. There is so much depth in the ocean that God has given us in these three verses. And so I just want to walk through some of these real quick, and we'll highlight different sections of the verse here on the screen. So first we see this phrase, fled to God for refuge. In the Old Testament, in, in Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see that God has uh, created a, a process that if you have accidentally killed somebody... And, and you're about to be avenged for that murder. The family of the person you murdered is coming after you. You can flee to what was called a city of refuge. And you would find safety and security. And the, the avenger could not get you. They couldn't come into that city and kill you if it was an accidental death. And so it was this idea that God provided a safe harbor, a, a place that you could anchor your life to, provide, to find sanctuary, protection. We see that word hope. Now, it's not, when we hear the word hope, we, we think often of, oh, I, I hope I get a puppy for Christmas, right? I hope my family can go to Disney World next year. And yet, this is not the hope that, that the Bible talks about. The Greek word hope is uh, elpidos, and it means this, joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Meaning, that we're not wondering are we going to be saved? Are we going to spend eternity with God? But we are expecting it, and it is the hope that we anchor our souls to that one day this world will end, and God will come back, Jesus will come back, and we will spend eternity with God. That is a confident expectation, not a, a wishful thought. So when you hear that word hope in Scripture, you've got to understand the weight of that word. We read about the curtain and the inner sanctuary and the high priest, and we read in Exodus and Leviticus about God has uh, designed this place called the temple. It was a place that, that he would reside with the nation of Israel. And he would, he would be there in the, what's called the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. And the high priest was the only person who was allowed to come into that Holy of Holies, that, that most sacred place, and only once a year. And there was a really thick curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of, of the temple. And so we see here in this verse that, that the writer of Hebrews takes us back to that moment when, when God resided with people, but there was separation between God and man. And it required a high priest, somebody to be our mediator, to go in there for us. And then it talks about how Jesus has become our high priest. That Jesus, we read later in Hebrews, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He is the high priest who has gone into the Holy of Holies, taken the curtain down, separated what was, taken what was separated and brought it back together. We read about Melchizedek and you're like, what? Who is that? Genesis chapter 14, we see this, this account of Abraham. He's gone off to war, and, and he's come back, and he meets this strange and mysterious character called Melchizedek. His, his name literally means king of righteousness. He was the king of a nation called Salem, which in Hebrew means peace. So he was the king of righteousness, and his kingdom was the kingdom of peace. The scripture tells us that Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. Nobody knew where he came from. Nobody knew where he was going. We didn't know his parents. He had no lineage behind him. And it was a foreshadowing of Jesus, of the Messiah, who would be both our high priest and our king. 
And then we read this word, I'm going to come back to it in the middle of the passage, about anchor for our souls. An anchor is as it was then as it is now. It's a symbol of stability, of safety. An anchor keeps you from drifting away from the place of safety and security and refuge. In fact, if you go to Rome and you go down to the catacombs and where many of the early Christians are buried, uh, you'll find three very common symbols on their graves. Uh, you'll see uh, the, the Greek word for fish, which is ichthus, and it stands for the words Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. You'll see uh, the dove representing the Holy Spirit, and you'll see the anchor, which for the early Christians taught that Jesus was our refuge, our anchor in difficult and insecure times. They anchored their hope to Jesus, to nothing else but to Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves today, where do we put our hope? What do we anchor our souls to? And, and for the next few minutes, I want to I highlight some things that I think are, are, are faulty anchors. And yet they're things that we so commonly anchor our lives to. And I'm not going to say, I'm not proposing that these are, are bad or immoral. I'm just saying they're weak anchors for us to base our eternal salvation on, to base our, our souls on. That these things will one day fail us. It's not to, to devalue them. I was talking with a high school student, Metamora Senior, this week, and he just had some questions about faith. And he talked about how he, he read in the Bible that we're to devalue all things but Jesus. And, and I said, yes and no. I said, it's not that we devalue these things, but we put them in the right perspective, Right? So what I'm going to talk about are, are fine and good and, and can be very moral things. But if they're things that you anchor your soul on, they will fail you. The chain will break loose. The ship will float away into the storm. I'm going to create some tension for you this morning, intentionally. So let's go through these because, number one, let's be honest, people will fail you. People will fail you. Your, your, your spouse, your kids will fail you. I blow it all the time as a husband and father. I can't even begin to count how many times in the last 22 years I've had to apologize to my wife. In the last 16 years, how many times I've had to apologize to Ethan. How many, 13 years, how many times I've had to apologize to Morgan. If, if my family anchored their souls to me, they're in a world of trouble, right? We, this, this past week, I was thinking through stories and what I could share and and, uh, you know, I think about love languages. I, I'm meeting with a young couple to do premarital counseling, and we talk about love languages. I don't know if you guys study these things, but we all have these different languages we speak that we, we, we feel loved, like, you know, physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, um, help me out, gifts, time, quality time, and something, oh, acts of service, thank you. So my wife and I speak two very different languages, Right? So when, when the kids are gone, whether they're, you know, at school or away for the weekend or wherever, wherever and we got free time, I'm thinking like, <laughs> and she's like, sweet, we can clean the cat litter. I got time to mop. I got time to vacuum. And I'm like. That is not what I'm talking about, honey. <laughs> the, the, the couple nights ago, um, I, I snore, and uh, evidently my wife in the middle of the night got up, got out of bed, um, subconsciously, I'm not sure what this means yet, I'll go to counseling for it soon, left her wedding ring on the nightstand, <laughs> and went downstairs and slept on the couch. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, 
If I was anchoring my soul to my wife and the security of our marriage for, for eternity, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I got questions. I got some concerns. Our, our parents will fail us. Our friends will fail us. Our boss will fail us. But before you all get high and mighty, you will fail your boss, right? Government employees will fail you. Can we talk about Hawaii for a minute? And what buttons you're not supposed to push, right? If we rest our eternal souls on government employees, whew, we're in trouble, right? And I'm going to create some more attention, maybe for us as pastors, because pastors will fail you. I hate to tell you that. At my last church, I was there for 11 years. We had seven youth pastors in 11 years. They would come and they would go. And I was the one that was always there to pick up the students and let them cry on my shoulder and rebuild and say, no, the next guy's going to be different. He's going to be awesome. He's going to come in and he's going to be awesome. And he would come in and a year and a half later he'd be gone and I'd be picking the teenagers up again. Do you know the average tenure of pastors? For associate pastors, it's 18 to 24 months in a church. For senior pastors, it's four years. Pastors come and pastors go. Pastor Bill has been here for a number of years, but he's going to be leaving at some point. Pastor Jake, to, to come here, had to leave his family at Green Bay first, and that was incredibly difficult. I, I've known pastors who have had affairs, who have embezzled money, who have failed at their jobs and been fired. I, I know of a pastor that I worked with who left in handcuffs as a registered sex offender. And, and yet, so many times, people anchor their souls to us as pastors. We're, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail you at times. Hopefully, we succeed more often than we fail. Sometimes we're going to make mistakes in our leadership, our teaching. One day, we'll walk off this stage for the last time and out these doors. You can't anchor your souls to us as pastors. It has to be just Jesus and Jesus alone. Not only will people fail you, but your physical bodies will fail you. I, they must teach this in, in seminary because I alliterated everything today, right? I don't even know how I did this. Like, <clears throat> but your physical bodies will fail you. Some of you know that uh, I became a runner several years ago, and, and if I'm honest, that had become a little bit of an idol in my life, running races, marathons, half marathons, triathlons, things like that. And it was my, my outlet. It was my emotional and spiritual and mental health, and it was what I anchored my, my really anchored my kind of life to. And then three years ago, I went to ice camp with middle school students, and I was 40, and I thought I was 13, and I tried to do something I shouldn't have done, and I blew my knee out. And I had reconstructive surgery in a year of rehab, and I discovered in that moment that, that my physical body, I'd elevated it. And running activity, I'd elevated, and I anchored my soul to that. Friends, you know the statistics on cancer. It's scary. I, I've done funerals recently for two men in the church and community. Death, as we're often reminded, has a 100% success rate. Our bodies will fail us. Your pursuits will fail you. Your, your career will fail you. One day, you, every employee will walk out the door for the last time. One day, you'll find yourself sitting at home for eating breakfast, not having anywhere to go. Your hobbies will fail you. And there will come a day when you can't do what used to bring you nourishment for your soul. Your possessions will fail you. Uh, your home will fall apart around you. It may one day burn down. There's a speaker and author I love. His name is Bob Goff. 
and he's a lawyer and, and Christian writer and speaker. And um, he, he shared a story when Pastor Brandon and I were at National Youth Workers Convention. He was there. And he shared a story about uh, the home that he and his wife had built in British Columbia. And, and it was their sanctuary. I mean, it was a beautiful home in a beautiful mountain lake setting and, and, and just magnificent, uh, amazing structure. And they would spend three months every year living in that home in British Columbia, away from everything and everybody. And one day, he had hired some workers to restain the wood. And they'd taken two rags with two different chemicals on it and left it in a pile. And while everybody was gone, it erupted and burned the entire house down. So he got the call, and he and his wife, uh, Sweet Maria, as he calls her, flew up to British Columbia, drove to the house, and stood and looked at the charred remains of this beautiful home. And it, it hit Bob hard. It was hard. It'd be hard for any of us. But for sweet Maria, it, it devastated her. And, and Bob couldn't figure out why. Like, she was having such a hard time with this. She could not move past this. She didn't see it as, as just a home that could be rebuilt. There was something more there. And it took several weeks and months of counseling for her to finally share that she had been abused as a child. Her husband didn't even know that. She had been abused as a child, and that home in British Columbia was the one place where she felt secure, safe, that nobody could get her, and now it was taken from her. And she had to re-anchor her soul to Jesus because her possessions failed her. Your car will fail you. I love my truck, but one day it's going to fail me. Your clothes will wear out. Your books will fall apart. Your, your computers will crash. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm, I'm trying to be realistic. I'm trying to point out the, the contrast between anchoring our lives, our souls, to these temporal things versus Jesus. Uh, John Steinbeck, American author, wrote, What good is the warmth of summer uh, without the cold of winter to give it sweetness? I'm, I'm giving you the cold of winter here today, saying all of these things will fail you. In contrast to the one thing that will never fail you. The person of Jesus will never fail you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is your salvation. He is your hope. He is where you can plant your feet and stand strong despite the storms in life. Jesus is your firm foundation, your rock, your mighty fortress, your anchor. Christ reigns supreme. There's no action steps today. There's no three-point bulletin and next steps to do as you leave here today. This is just a clarion call to, to make Jesus the anchor of your souls, to, to understand that every other foundation is sinking stand, that every other foundation is doomed to failure. This is a call to, to flip the switch and to put Jesus back in his rightful place. I want to close with the words from Paul in the book of Colossians. I'm not a huge fan of the message paraphrase, but I read these words, and, and it just resonated with me. And so I want you to hear these words today. You can look them up later for yourselves. So just sit back and listen. Paul writes to the church in Colossae. We look at this son, Jesus, and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son, Jesus, and see God's original purpose in everything created for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him, Jesus, and find its purpose in him, Jesus. 
Jesus was there before any of it came into existence, and Jesus holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, Jesus organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. Jesus was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so, so roomy that everything of God finds his proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all of the broken and all of the dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in, in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Jesus brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one, Christ reigns supreme. It is not about other people. It's not about your physical bodies. It's not about your pursuits. It is not about your possessions. It is always and only about the person of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Father, may you flip a switch in our souls today. May you flip a switch in what draws our attention, what stirs our heart where we plant our feet. Father, would you flip a switch in us today that, that we would repent of laying our foundation on, on all of these temporal things that will one day fail us and, and neglecting the one sure foundation that will never fail us. Father, would your spirit speak to us today that, that you are the rock, you are the fortress, you are our salvation. Father, would you remind us that, that this world will one day end and we will all be guests of honor at our own funeral. And that in that moment, we have to answer the one question, what did we do with Jesus? It's not about our family, it's not about our friends, it's not about our possessions, our finances, any of that. It's about Jesus. Father, would you invade our souls today? transform us, renew us, make us whole in Jesus. It's in his powerful name that we pray.